Hi, everybody. Welcome, welcome. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from New York. And um, so tonight we're going to talk about um, one of my favorite topics. Um, this, this talk is called Creating the Fellowship You Crave. And, um, you know, I love, I love this topic um, because I think this is like a beautiful bonus that we get. Like we come here um, not necessarily looking to make friends or for fellowship, right? We come here, most of us, I came here because I was, I was in um, a lot of pain. I was living with morbid obesity. I was over 300 pounds and I couldn't stop eating. And I knew everything there was to know about diets and weight loss. And I could not take what I knew and do it consistently. And, and that was crushing. And so I came here initially, um, really just wanting to get thin. I was hoping that what I was gonna get was um, more control. I really thought that you guys were gonna teach me how to be in more, better control of this thing. And, um, and I had no idea that it was, had zero control. I was never gonna regain control. Um, and that was gonna be an open invitation to um, friendship, fellowship, relationships with humans and an incredible relationship with God. Because um, I did not come here looking to create and cultivate a relationship with God. I had no idea that that was what this was. And so um, what does fellowship have to do anyway? with uh, creating a relationship with God, with forming a relationship with God and, and how does that relate with 12 steps? And, you know, sometimes I get this um, indication, people say things like, well, I can, I, you know, I can take this and I can go practice it on my own. I don't need, I don't need, I don't need a sponsor. You know, I've heard people say, I don't need a sponsor. You know, um, I, I can just do this separate, or I don't need, I don't need a group of people around me. I could do it separate. Um, and, um, and in fact, we're actually told quite differently in the big book where it's repeated over and over again that we absolutely do need a fellowship. So what is fellowship? If this is something I'm gonna need, what is it anyway? Um, and so I'm a, you know, I'm a little bit of a nerdy kind of person. I love to look up words and, and they're derive their meanings and try to figure it out. I like, I just love words. Um, so when researching for this topic, I found online some information that would help me form a clear definition. And there are some basic elements that make up a fellowship. And here's what they are. One, common beliefs. Two, common work, three, a common faith, four, common need, and five, a common struggle, six, other areas in common, which would include a common purpose, seven, a common conviction or principles, right? We could call them steps, um, eight, a common hope, and nine, a common mission. So common beliefs. We have a belief that there is something bigger than us, a power greater than us, 
which can relieve us. That's our common belief here. That's what we believe in. Two, our common work. Well, our common work in the fellowship is yes, getting recovered, but helping others to recover. That's the work that we do. Three, a common faith. And yep, that's the belief. A faith is the absolute certainty that we are going to be okay. That whatever that means, we believe that we are safe, that we're protected, that we're gonna be okay. And that's what we say, like we have this belief and a faith and a power greater than ourselves. Four, a common need. Yep, I came here because I needed to stop eating compulsively. That was my need, right? I thought that's what the real need was. And actually my real need was needed a relationship with God that I could not seem to cultivate and create sufficiently enough outside of these steps. Many people come here with very strong faith. They have a religious faith. They have a religious, you know, conviction, belief, practices. They might even have work in their religion. But for someone like me, that step one, understanding that I am powerless over food and my life is unmanageable is the necessity for this type of recovery. That for me, in order for me to have a sufficient relationship with God, it required me to take these steps. And that's really what this is. Um, you know, I, in order to be productive in a fellowship, Believers should share in the responsibility of helping others who may lack the essentials of life. That's what it talks about in the fellowship. That a fellowship, in order to have a productive fellowship, the people that are in that fellowship share responsibility to help other people who can't survive, who are dying, right? And that's the work that we do together, helping people who are dying. In, in the chapter to wives on page 105, it's going to start talking about a little bit of a definition of friends and fellows. And it says, we seldom had friends at our homes. It's talking about the wives now. We seldom had friends at our homes, never knowing how or when the man of the house would appear, right? We could make few social engagements. We came to live almost alone. And that's what the disease did. I'm not just talking about, you know, like this really sort of speaks to Al-Anon that women with alcoholic husbands were nervous to have people in their homes. But I didn't have a, an open door kind of policy with friends either for myself because and I came to live almost alone, even within my family. You know, the disease, in the disease, we're cut off from others as well, you know, as well as we are from God. We're cut off from God and we're cut off from other people. And the disease lives and thrives in isolation. We eat alone, we binge alone, we purge alone. We're not social drinkers and eaters. You know, in fact, uh, the other day, when I read, you know, and discussed the first half of the chapter of Vision for You, I really drilled down on that. 
that eating it for people like me is antisocial. It's not a social activity. You know, I, I when I start eating in alcoholic ways, um, I can't even hear conversations around me. I don't have fellowship over food. I can't connect with people over food because when I eat, I can't even hear the people. You know, um, in the grip of my of active addiction, I fail to show up for happy occasions and sad occasions. You know, um, I missed a dear friend's funeral because I was so ashamed about my weight gain. Like that's, that's what the disease does. It tells us that um, don't even go to the funeral, right? Don't even go to the funeral. Um, in Bill's story, page 15, it says, we commence to make many fast friends and a fellowship has grown up among us, which it is a wonderful thing to feel a part of. The joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. So we start to make fast friends. And fast friends doesn't necessarily mean that we become best friends tomorrow. Fast friends has actually a different definition. Fast friends are people who, yes, newly meet, maybe by circumstances, right? Like in the rooms of OA, but they find themselves mutually trustworthy. And they sow, because of the trustworthiness, they bond together, right? What bonds us is that we have this ability to trust one another, you know, to open up and share some of the deepest, darkest pains. And we find that the people that we tend to share it with, and I guess because we have a sense of anonymity in our sharing, we're able to bond with one another and there's no judgment. So anything that we share, you know, we're not, we're not being judged by other people. Um, you know, and it says, and um, the fellowship grows up among us, right? That it grows up among us. So it's not forced and it's not fake. And there's this feeling of inclusion. You know, it's like ev anybody is worthy of one another's friendship here. It's not like a secret club or only like, you know, the select people get to like, be friends together. Basically, if you want in, you're in. It's like the easiest sorority or fraternity in the world. All you have to do is say you have a desire to stop eating compulsively. And it's like, great, you're in, you know? Um, but the, the deep friendships grow, they're organic. You know, it, and I think about it like this growing up process, it takes time. It does take time, even though it's fast, real deep friendships, they take some time and growing up, you know, I think about growing up, it happens in developmental stages. That's how people grow. That's how human beings grow. They have like different developmental milestones and stages and that we can kind of mark them off, these milestones that we reach in our maturity. It's like, oh, you reached a certain point, you know, like a little kid loses its teeth, check, you know, they reach puberty, check. There's these milestones. And we have milestones too in our friendships. These, you know, I think of them as um, the milestones that we work through together are the steps. Those are our developmental milestones in the fellowship. Um, you know, and, and we, we're a part of something. 
It's a human connection that draws us in. And so many of us have come here rejected and hurt. We, we are quick to reject and we're quick to hurt others because we come here that same way. Um, and we've had conditional relationships or ones where we had to promote some image of ourselves, like some friendships on the outside. There was a way that we felt we had to be perceived and we did everything in our power to make sure that we kept that image up. Um, but here we create fellowships that cultivate sustained joy, even when things are going hard. You know, in fact, our friendships grow out of our difficulties. And oftentimes that's what first draws us to make a friend here. It's a shared difficulty. And if you think about it, you know, I think about some of the most profound shares that I've heard is not when people are out there promoting some sort of image of perfection. Think about the shares that have landed in your hearts, the ones that have opened you up, is usually when people are revealing something about themselves that is very deep, that's very painful, that's very real, that lacks like this prideful way, but it's all humility. It's like, you know, it's like they bear, they, they, they show their underbelly, their weak underbelly. And that allows us to get to know them better. Um, so then how do we make these fast friendships, right? If this is what's important to us in fellowship, how do we make these friendships? And in Bill's story on page 16, it says, well, we meet frequently so that newcomers may find the fellowship they seek. At these informal gatherings, one may often see from 50 to 200 persons who are growing in numbers and power. So how do we make these fast fellowship friendships? We get together often, right? Which is why sponsors generally tell their sponsees a certain number of meeting requirements because we know it's important for your recovery. I know it's important for my recovery. I've gotta be at the places where people have a shared mission with me, who have a common belief, who have a common need, who have a common goal, right? Have a common purpose and a common faith. I need to be there with them, must be together. Um, and, and our purpose at these meetings is to help the newcomer, is to help the still sick and suffering. We say, those are the most important people at our meeting. They're the reason why we're there. Our friendships, our relationships, where our shared mission is in saving lives. That's our mission, saving each other's lives. And there's a solution, page 17 says, we are people who normally would not mix, but there exists among us a fellowship of friendliness and an understanding, which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner, the moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie, Joyousness and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Unlike the feelings of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. 
the feeling of having a shared com uh, common peril is one element. That's just one part in the powerful cement which binds us. But that in itself would never have held us together as we're now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news the book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. So we're given a definition here, friendliness and an understanding. We understand our common peril, our common problem, and we show one another understanding. We understand the disease and we understand the sufferer. The fellowship, it says, is indescribable. It, meaning it's too wonderful for words. It almost sounds spiritual when they talk about this, this fellowship. It's got like a, a godly sort of aspect to it. It's very common, this very profound, uncommon, profound experience. We have a camaraderie, which is defined as a spirit of good friendship and loyalty among members of a group. That's what camaraderie means, loyalty. So we're loyal, right? We're loyal to this program, right? To the principles, to the steps, but we're loyal to one another. And what does that mean? It means we don't abandon each other, right? If someone is eating, we're still kind to them. Like news alert, we don't have to be mean to people who are eating, we can actually be nice to them. Um, if someone is struggling, even if they're struggling to be honest, or even if they're unwilling to go to any length. Now, we might not continue to work with someone who's unwilling, like you can't sponsor someone who's admittedly unwilling. And it's difficult to work with someone who who won't be honest. Sometimes people struggle with honesty and they need to know like, this is important and you're in the right spot and, and we're loyal, you can trust us, be honest. Um, but even if they can't, right, we're still kind. Remember that they are sick. When people are, you know, struggling, unwilling and dishonest, we remember that they're sick and we treat them like an unwell friend. We offer consistent friendship and support for one another. And we're loyal to the principle. So we're not going to water it down in a spirit of friendship. I can be nice to people and be honest. I don't have to be dishonest. You know, they say like we don't co-sign each other's crap. I'm not going to agree with something that's not true. If someone says something to me that I think is like, uh-oh, a little dangerous, a little slippery. I am going to be pointing it out, but I'm going to do it with a spirit of kindness. It's not like, can, you know, condemning. We're not here to condemn anybody. You know, the paragraph talks about friendships that come from being rescued together and that those relationships that if it's just about getting rescued together, those relationships, they don't endure once the rescuing is done, right? And the celebration's over. It's like, yay, we all got rescued. Bye. See you later. Um, no, those relationships don't survive. But ours continues indefinitely. Because for us, in order to remain rescued, we actually have to help 
with the rescuing of still others. You know, we're like, we were drowning. The rescue ship comes, we get rescued and we don't merely sail away. We like, okay, now I know how to get on the rescue ship. I'm getting back in the water and helping other people that are drowning. And that's where we're able to remain consistently bound together. We're bound together through sustainable, harmonious action. Our recovery depends on this. It depends on the growth of our spiritual condition, which means we help others. We are bound together through the self-sacrifice and the working with others. So my fellowship grows as I work with others. And as I work with others to help others, when they help others, it's growing, it's ever growing. And what does that look like? Like, what is this in definable terms, right? So I believe, you know, that we refer one another to one another. I don't think that's anonymity. I don't believe that that's a breach of anonymity. That if I, um, I might not give the details of someone else's life, that would be breaching confidentiality. But within the fellowship, I don't think it should be a big secret that we're all here together in this fellowship. Um, you know, I, I, what do I do? Um, you know, if I work with someone and um, they get well, then I quickly call upon them to help when a new person comes my way, right? It's like, you got well, great. Here's this new person, go help them. And I, you know, I send new sponsees, many contact names and numbers. If you're someone who has reached out for help from me um, and made contact with me, I usually say like, you know, is it okay if I pass your number on to other people? because it's, that's, that's how we're helping one another. That's how we build this fellowship. Um, you know, I look to get to know people as people. Uh, if I know someone who needs a sponsor and I'm not available, then I look to hook them up. You know, I, I wanna know people as people and not as projects. I think it's important that we actually look at each other, not as fuel to burn this machine that's gonna keep me sober. You know, sometimes I hear things like that, like, well, I'm going to work with people so that I never drink again, that I never eat again. And that might be your initial motivation. But if God enters your heart and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous, he changes that pretty quick, that people are no longer my fuel, right? That the, my heart's desire actually changes, that we want to help other people. It comes from, it comes from desire, not just necessity. Um, so we encourage one another to create a fellowship around them. You know, I ask sponsees to make a minimum of three calls a day, actual calls, contacts, not text messages, not voicemail, little messages, but actual dialogues. And sometimes that requires a lot of phone calls, but you never know whose life you're saving. Even if you leave a message and that person hears the message, right? And then you keep going until you reach somebody else. You just never know. And I say when, when making those calls, 
I, I, you know, suggest that we ask specific questions, focus specifically on what you're currently studying in the book. So the friendships and fellowships can remain loyal to the cause, the cause of this work. You know, we refrain from getting worked up in other causes and outside issues because we wanna maintain the integrity of this program. Um, so, and we don't wanna alienate anybody. So we refrain from political discussions and social causes, right? On these conversations and from my own religious, specific religious practices, because I don't wanna alienate someone else. So we can talk about spiritual action. We can talk about prayer. We can talk about meditation, but, I, but we do have to be somewhat open to this, that our common work is to recover from compulsive overeating, that our common work is to form our own personal relationship with God, right? So it might look different for different people and we never wanna alienate anybody. Um, and I, I say that it's important, you know, if you're a sponsor and your sponsees calling other people, it's important that you're not the only recovered voice they hear because that will help them create their own fellowship. In We Agnostics, page 45, it says, many times we talk to a new man and watch his hope rise as we discuss his alcohol problems and explain our fellowship. But his face falls when we speak of spiritual matters, especially when we mention God, for we have remained, we have reopened a subject which our man thought he had neatly evaded or entirely ignored. So the fellowship's purpose is to give hope to others. And they get hope from learning about the alcoholic problem from those that have this problem. And it tells, it lets the fellow know that she's not alone. And since we do this by not lecturing, but by telling our experience, by telling our stories and what happened to us, then our recovery gives them hope. And now the tricky part sometimes happens when we talk about God. Because remember, that's, that's our common solution is a relationship with God. So we've got to discuss it. You know, and oftentimes the addict wants to skip that God part. They want to like gloss over it. But we who have recovered knows that there is no spiritual part of the program because the entire program is spiritual. It's a spiritual program. And the fellowship purpose is to help introduce the sponsee to God. You know, I'd say the fellowship is like the middleman that sets up the meeting. It helps it helps broker the meeting between the person and God. And we agnostics also says that arrived at this point, page 53, we were squarely confronted with the question of faith. We couldn't duck the issue. Some of us had already walked far over the bridge of reason toward the desired shore of faith. The outlines and the promise of the new land had brought luster to tired eyes and fresh courage to flagging spirits friendly hands had stretched out in welcome. So what does the friendship do? It welcomes us. We are being welcomed, right? And what is it that we're being welcomed to? Well, we're being welcomed to come and meet God. That's what the friendly hands are about. And to me, I think 
that's why the fellowship is so beautiful because it helps us come to meet God. It helps us come to form a relationship with God. And page 55 says, we finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup just as much as the feeling we had for a friend. So I love that. God and friendships are part of our makeup. Fellowship, community is natural. It is the way that God created us as human beings. Human beings are social animals. That's how we were created to be social. We're not cats, right? We're not snakes, we're not spiders. We're not designed to live lives of solitude and alienation. You know, think about in, in Bill's story, it talks about the lone wolf, right? That was the most dangerous spot he could be in. That's when the disease really had its grip around his neck. This disease loves to get us alone, right? Connection is essential. We are not meant to live lives of solitude and alienation. We find God through friendships and fellowships. We do God's work with others. We're meant to do God's work with other people. In the chapter, Working with Others on page 89, it says life will take on new meaning to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends, this is an experience you must not miss. So that's necessity. We know in this book, when they tell you must, it's, it's telling you, you must not miss it. You cannot skip that part of the program, right? It's a must. We know you will not want to miss it. Not only is it a must, but guess what? You're going to want it. It's a must that you're gonna want. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. We're guaranteed that. Fellowship is the bright spot. So if someone is having difficulty and they're having dark days, well, having fellowship is like their sunshine, right? It, it's, I've been given the opportunity to see so many fellows recover and then they go on and help others. And you know, I have to tell you, I came here, I was really lonely. I was really lonely. I was lonely in the middle of a crowd. I was lonely in a huge family. I was lonely with people all around me, you know, but I felt cut off from the people around me. At the end of my despair, you know, I was so humiliated by this disease that I could barely make eye contact. I would come to meetings and I could hardly look up. I would be in a room with a ton of people and feel all alone and disconnected. I would be at family gatherings. And the only thing that I could think of was what are they serving, right? Why are they serving something I can't eat? There's not enough for me, right? Or else I was revisiting the ways that each person there was failing me. I don't experience life that way anymore. I do not live like that at all anymore. I learned how to be a good friend and a good family member. And I learned it through the steps. The steps taught me that, you know, and I practiced it in the rooms first. 
genuinely, you know, today I have to say, I genuinely enjoy being with people. I like getting to know others. It doesn't feel forced and it's not fake and it's not difficult. And I think it really has a lot to do with my relationship with God. I love God. I love the creator. I love his creations. I feel, I feel much more accepting and loving towards what God has made, you know? Um, on page 90, it says, you should be described to him as one of a fellowship who, as part of their own recovery, try to help others who will be glad to talk to him if he cares to see you. And then in working with others, page 94, it says, if your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you have perhaps made a friend. Maybe you've disturbed him about the question of alcoholism. This is all to the good. The more hopeless he feels, the better. He will be more likely to follow your suggestions. So think about this. Like we don't yell at each other. We're glad to talk and we demonstrate this in our demeanor. You know, are you glad to talk to others? Do you feel happy to talk to other people? If you're following the directions, well, you're gonna show that, you're gonna demonstrate that. We're sensible and we're reasonable and we're understanding. Fellowship is gentle, it's supposed to be gentle. Even if the person is uninterested in following the steps, we're still told here, make a friend, be friendly, even if they don't want what you have. Even if they flat out refuse it, we're still told be nice. You know, it's an interesting friendship because we're honest about the hopeless condition of doing it alone. In fact, we drive home the hopelessness. We make kind, clear suggestions. So I think about it, it's very different. Like usually you would think and you talk to someone and they're really upset about something, you're supposed to like, if you're a friend, if you're a fellow, you're supposed to cheer them up and pat them on the back and say, it's gonna be okay. Don't worry about it. The sun's going to come out tomorrow. And we actually don't do that. We say, oh yeah, it's going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse than that. But we do it in a way that's, that's nice. We're supposed to drive home hopelessness. Why? Because that way they're more ready for the solution. And we do it in a way that's kind so that when in fact they ever come circling out, let's say they're not interested. If we do it kindly and nicely, and we represent the fellowship in a palatable way, when they are ready, you haven't turned them off to Overeaters Anonymous. You haven't made this a place where they're never going to want to come again, right? We should have the welcome mat out. Keep the light on. Keep the welcome mat out. Um, it says never talk down. Page 95 says Never talk down to an alcoholic from any moral or spiritual hilltop. Simply lay out the kit of spiritual tools for his inspection and show him how they worked with you. Offer him friendship and fellowship. Tell him that if he wants to get well, you'll do anything to help. If he's not interested in your solution, if he expects you to act only as a banker for his financial difficulties or a nurse for his freeze, then you may have to drop him until he changes his mind and he may do so after he gets hurt some more. So no, we don't speak with a tone of superiority. 
when reaching out to another, we're not better than them, right? In no way is anybody who says that they're recovered better. My recovery does not put me above anyone. What I say is I'm merely a sick girl who followed directions that led me to God and God healed me. That does not make me superior. So what I offer another sick and suffering fellow is my friendship and a place in the fellowship right with me. I offer them the directions that led me to God. And if they're not interested in finding God, then I'm still nice, but I can't sponsor them. How do I know if someone isn't interested? They take no action towards following the directions. That's how we know. You know, page 103 says, someday we hope that Alcoholics Anonymous will help the public to a better realization of the gravity of the alcoholic problem, but we shall be of little use if our attitude is one of bitterness or hostility drinkers will not stand for it. So the fellowship is not the byproduct of hostility and bitterness. We don't bully the sick into getting well, right? And I, I for me, uh, you know, like, I, I've been a teacher for 25 years and I see it in the classroom. Um, I've seen bitterness and hostility in teachers and it doesn't work, right? Bitterness and hostility make people nervous. If, if people are looking to get well here and they're greeted with bitterness and hostility, they're frightened. And, and there's actually been brain study done. Research has shown that when people are frightened, the parts of the brain that are responsible for rational thinking cease to be to dominate. So rational thinking when you're afraid is cut off. You don't think rationally when you're scared. You're irrational, right? And, and it further, one of the research says that when people feel threatened, when they're threatened, the cortex, which is responsible for risk assessment and actions, ceases to function. You get really risky. You do crazy things, insane things when you're afraid. You know, in other words, logical thinking is replaced by overwhelming emotions, favoring short-term solutions and sudden reactions, right? When people are frightened, like think about it, you're being chased in the jungle, right? You're not going to say, hmm, I think I'm going to discover a new path a new way out. Let me learn something new right now. You're going to go with what you think is the quickest and, and the fastest and not necessarily the most effective. So we don't want to frighten anybody because we want them open to learning. We need people to be ready to receive new instruction. The fellowship should be warm and encouraging. You can be clear and direct without inciting fear or being cruel. In fact, I'd say if you're going to err on one side or the other, it's best to err on the side of love, right? Um, you know, I want to make sure that I leave time for, um, for questions, but, um, you know, in, it's very important here that, um, Page 133 says, we're sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. We cannot subscribe to the belief that this life is a veil of tears, though it once was just that for many of us. 
So God wants us to have friends and be happy. And, you know, in a vision for you, it talks all about the fellowship on page 152. It says, and we, and we discussed this the last time when we, when we went through the chapter of vision for you. Um, but I think it's important to know that, you know, the reason why I really jumped in and, and said, I want to talk about fellowship here is last time we read the first half of the chapter of vision for you. And, and that chapter really starts describing how no longer can we use food or alcohol as a way of connection. And that now sober, what are we gonna do? Now abstinent, what is gonna take the place, that empty spot? And yes, it's a relationship with God, but it's the fellowship. Fellowship is a very important aspect of this program. And if you've been here a number of years, and you have not formed a friendship, a fellowship, I would say to you, you're doing it wrong. You know, in a, in a gentle, kind way, I would point out that, that there's something amiss, there's something wrong with the way that you're practicing this program, um, which is why, you know, one of the things that we share often in this is that yes, in this particular group, what we hope to provide for people is the right information, clear direction in a loving and supportive environment, right? We must be loving and supportive of one another. Um, and um, I'm gonna stop with that because I wanna leave time for questions.